I'm not sure you heard, Reed, but there is breaking news from California this week. The Flintstone House can keep its cartoon statues in its lawn thanks to a settlement that occurred. I'm not familiar with the Flintstone House. I mean, I'm familiar with the Flintstone House as it relates to the cartoon. Apparently in Hillsborough, California, there's a multi-million dollar mansion that's basically an homage to the 1960s cartoon. And and inside the home, everything's outfitted to look like Flintstones. And on the outside, in the garden, there's full-size statues of all the people from Flintstones. Okay, new rule. You can only have houses that are a throwback to homes that were were actually real. So Brady Bunch, fine. Full House, sure. If your house is going to represent a cartoon, you yourself have to represent the cartoon. So you have to be a Smurf. Like you just, you have to wear it around. The white pants and the hat, like that's that's your deal. Like that's that's where we are. So if you're going to have the Flintstones house, I'm sorry, but you have to pedal your own car. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. All right, welcome to episode number 231 of Touchpoint. I am Reed. That is Chris. Hey, Reed. How's it going? I'm just sitting here uh, painting the upper half of my body blue because I'm going to be doing some Smurf cosplay, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. No point in looping back on that topic. Uh, Welcome to episode 231. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you're back for another episode, welcome back. Welcome back, Cotter. Did they have... Was there a house? A welcome back, Cotter, was set in a high school. Anyway, excited that you're here for another week. I know this is a holiday week, and so thanks for spending it with us. If you're listening to this at some point in the in the in the future, this actually is coming out the kind of Fourth of July week, I guess. Fourth uh, of July actually falls on a Sunday, but in any case, we're going to do something a little bit different today, based on what we've talked about the last several weeks, Chris. I think this is really a, a great kind of tie-in to to resurface and bring back. But not quite a year ago, nine, 10 months ago, uh, episode 187 was on omni-channel marketing and the engaged consumer. And so we felt like uh, this might be a good topic to kind of resurface based on some of the, uh, the things we've talked about here recently. Digital patient engagement strategies, you have to understand sort of the behaviors of the customers and what they're bringing into the healthcare experience. And so this podcast that we did way back in September was really good. We talked about multi-channel, omni-channel marketing, sort of the omni-channel patient. And then we had a really great interview with a person that's pretty familiar in the podcast space, Amber Mack. If you recall, she actually uh, was one of the keynote speakers at last year's Virtual Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. She joined and uh, shared some of the trends that she's seeing. It was It's a really good podcast. We think it's very relevant and germane, and we're going to rerun it for you. Well, you could say it's the return of the Mac, <laughs> right? I think you can say that. I'm not sure sh- how she would feel about it, but yeah, there you go. Maybe she's a huge Mark Morrison fan. Like you never know. <laughs> 
That's what we're doing. So anyway, welcome back, uh, everybody, including Amber. And I think this is going to be a great episode and certainly would love your feedback. Even last week, we talked about you know personalization and some things like that, UI, UX, patient experience, all that stuff a few weeks ago. So again, I think this is a great one to kind of uh, slot back in uh, as we've kind of built on this topic for the last few weeks. Before we get to that, though, quick plug for the website touchpoint.health would encourage you to navigate over there. Certainly there's more than just our show. There's plenty of other, almost 20 of them now shows on the network would encourage you to check out those shows, show host episodes, topics, etc. And right up at the top, when you land on the website, you'll see something called the TPS reports right there underneath the logo. Click on that, subscribe. It's a weekly email, comes out every Monday morning. We promise not to spam you. All it is, five articles to start your week as curated by our show host. And so again, great way to kind of point you uh, to some really good content uh, as you kick off each Monday morning. So We'll pause here and then uh, be back with episode, a rerun of episode number 187. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And read, consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Recently, as you know, as we've talked about, we've had the Virtual Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. Today's topic actually was inspired by some of the things that we were discussing in the, through that virtual summit. Much of the conference was around how to communicate better with one another, with our customers. They were talking about different ways to improve that communication to different audiences, like to consumers, to physicians, but they also addressed like content marketing strategies, new technologies, etc. One of the keynote presenters, Amber Matt, I actually had a chance to sit down with her after the conference and her interview will run later on in the show. So I'm looking forward to that. So stay tuned. The one inspiration that we that came to us after we kind of heard some of those sessions is we were really trying to understand whatever customer we're trying to address, however we engage with this customer, kind of brought up the whole concept of omnichannel marketing. Omnichannel, based out of Atlanta, said a different thing. Well, omni means everywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's channels that are everywhere and the marketing associated with such channels. And that sounds like something very attainable to all of us, right? We have enough resources and bandwidth to use every <laughs> channel possible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's interesting. Omni-channel marketing. And how does that differ from just what we normally do or multi-channel marketing? 
Yeah, big difference there. And so let's start off with that. I think that's a great lead into the first blog post that we found from a company that actually is a personalization and omnichannel technology firm called Emersys. They actually posted a really interesting blog post that talks about the differences between multi-channel and omnichannel marketing. Because in my mind, they seem very close, don't they? They do. And and I would have said probably coming into this conversation that there wasn't much of a difference. And that's kind of what they're, they're talking about here, right? Is that multi-channel marketing refers to the ability to interact with potential customers on various platforms. Okay. That's pretty straightforward. I think a channel might be a print ad, could be brick and mortar location, obviously website, promotional event, product packaging, et cetera. And omnichannel refers to a multi-channel sales approach that provides customers an integrated experience across those channels. So the customer can be interacting with you online from a desktop, mobile device, phone, brick and mortar, offline, online. But the whole point here is it focuses more on a seamless experience. With that little definition there, we're starting to see some subtle differences here. But the article goes on, doesn't it? Let's dig in here a little bit, because at this point, uh, I'm probably making assumptions. <laughs> let's, let's, actually, let's actually dig in here. They talk about that there is some uniqueness, obviously, to multi-channel and omni-channel marketing strategies. And so to look at that, they break it down in a number of categories. The first is channel versus customer. So in that case, multi-channel aims to get the word out via the maximum possible number of channels. So kind of the shotgun approach, I guess. I'm putting words in people's mouth here, but maximum number of channels. Like it's just about awareness to some degree. And it's about casting that that wide net. You know, you're looking for the most customer engagements, more the merrier. It's a volume play. And companies that adopt two or more channels are most popular being you know, social media and email, obviously. The flip side of the other side of that coin, omni-channel, it, it interrelates every channel to engage the customer as more of a holistic effort. This is to make sure, obviously, they're having a great experience. The brand is, is seen and thought of through you know, all the channels and all the experiences uh, and the focus is on building stronger relationship with the customer. Very quickly, multi-channel, it's just any and everywhere, just awareness, get people in, make contact, that kind of thing. We're omni-channel. You're really thinking about it as from an engagement standpoint as you're going in and trying to engage uh, that holistic viewpoint. I guess it depends on your perspective, right? Um, where you're sitting from. And it's interesting that they put the customer at the center of omnichannel strategies. The article goes on to, to describe another difference between these two strategies. That difference is consistency versus engagement. And you, you kind of address that a little bit, but omnichannel's focus is on that experience. It's about bringing out key differences between the different channels and how do you use them in order to maintain consistency in the messaging, but also consistency in the experience. And in this world, omnichannel, no two channels are equal, so to speak, right? It isn't social media and email and website. What you want to do is you want to be very specific about understanding where your customers are how they're interacting with your channels and delivering that same experience through each and every one of those channels that they're in. Kind of a subtle difference, but an important one here, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think so. It seems to me, and we'll go through these other couple of points here, but that omni-channel is much more thoughtful. I mean, that's really kind of where this comes down, I think, you know, to some degree. 
you know, effort versus effortless, again, kind of along those lines. When we're talking about, they say in here, another priority of omnichannel marketing is understanding how to eliminate effort from the customer experience. That seems harder to do. (laughs) (laughs) But they say that there's a tendency to consider that, that many channels available to connect simply means more options to be used. That's more of a multi-channel approach where omni-channel, again, involves using data to understand where efforts exist in the consumer experience and how to remove uh, rather than add effort. You're trying to streamline and kind of remove those obstacles, I guess, versus, again, leaving it up to everybody to figure it out on their own. I'm thinking of our favorite TLC program friction hunters, because that's really what it suspiciously sounds like here, right? It's like mm-hmm. finding out where those where those potential friction points are in that experience and eliminating that and making it easier and effortless for people to engage. The last thing that they kind of bring up here is uh, that there are pros and cons with each approach. Uh, you know, the way we're talking about it, there are benefits to doing multi-channel marketing. I think that in certain strategies, it does make sense to be present on multiple different channels, particularly when you're Thinking of like, I guess you described it as like a shotgun approach, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're trying to spread out the most awareness or what have you. Whereas uh, Omnichannel is more focused on optimizing the journey, so to speak. And I think you need to play them together because there's no cons to either approach. The perception across the industry is generally that Omnichannel is better. It's that North Star. While having and enabling multiple channels isn't bad, connecting them together should really be the goal. But that isn't the only thing that, that you, you want to use these strategies for. No. And I would say that one's not necessarily better than the other. I think this still goes back to what are you trying to accomplish, obviously, because there may be a better approach or a different approach you want to take based on what it is that you're doing. And I think that a lot of times in my experience working with healthcare organizations and yours too, I'm sure, is that sometimes we get confused. We think, oh, now now there's this, this new widget here. There's this, this new tool. We launched a chatbot on our website. Now we have to focus our efforts on that to make it a very strong channel. And while that, that is true, that is a strategy that you need to adopt, I think also it's important to understand not only a multi-channel perspective of your digital efforts, but you also have to think about it from an omnichannel perspective. Think of it as like not only breadth, but depth to the strategy. And a big part here too, Reed, is that multi-channel, the channels can be separate and they don't have to talk to one another. And you can measure them separately. When you're thinking about measuring and, and understanding performance, you have to think about your digital channels independently, but then you also have to start thinking about them more broadly across multiple different channels and how if they go from your chat bot to let's say your find a doctor tool to let's say you're making an appointment button so to speak all of those things have to string together and you want to understand how people are experiencing that entire journey and i think again what are you trying to accomplish you know where where are we starting from where where's the ending point And it becomes very challenging for us sometimes to make the discernment. So hopefully those definitions that we just covered are going to kind of help when you're thinking about it there in your offices and you're starting to think about, like, what what do I need to do? Certainly, you want to keep be mindful of all of these different digital channels that are out there, but you also want to be mindful of the overall journey together. Why don't we quickly pivot to another article that... uh, 
was written by the CMO from Adobe.com. So apparently Adobe.com has a whole site dedicated to the chief marketing officer. So the website is cmo.adobe.com. And they published an article, Reed, that's called Health, that says that's titled Healthcare's Next Frontier is the Omnichannel Patient. The Omnichannel Patient, played by Lee Majors. <laughs> oh, is he still alive? Sorry. I don't think he is. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know. He would be in casting. He would be the right one. It's an interesting article, and uh, they've got several things in here, uh, some good good data points and all that that we'll we'll go through and talk uh, talk a little bit about. Um, you know, initially they talk about you know the rise of new sources of competition and and, and really the growing expectation of patients for what we've talked about for weeks now, which is this digital experience, this heightened digital experience of what they obviously compare us against, uh, you know, in the rest of their life. So the, you know, search, schedule, interact, pay, you know, those basic actions, certainly, but there's so much more than that even. And again, this refers to this concept that we talked about a couple episodes ago around the digital front door, spanning from patient acquisition through fulfillment, this approach towards the way patients' expectations, consumer expectations, what they're bringing into the healthcare space is going to increasingly replace the old school ways of patient acquisition, which, you know, way back in the 70s was really through the emergency department, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it still is to some degree, right? I mean, that's yeah. still a huge entry point for inpatient admissions easily. Um so I, you know, they've got some interesting data points in here, and they talk a lot about the digital experience and, and that it's just not only a good place for patient engagement. They show that health systems with excellent patient experience ratings have a net margin of 4.7% on average compared to 1.8% for hospitals with low ratings. That's not good, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they go into a little bit more of that, but I think certainly... Patient experience when I got into healthcare was very much about, and we've talked about this, very much about what happens inside the brick and mortar of the actual location, you know, the address. And that's changed quite a bit, certainly with with digital over the last uh, couple of years, especially. It sure has. And what we'll do is after the break, we'll come back and talk about an actual survey that was sponsored by Adobe.com and Change Healthcare, where they talk about some of those pain points in healthcare digital experiences and ways and suggestions on ways that they can improve it. And we'll do that after the break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so uh, still inside this Adobe.com uh, article, we're going to talk about the study that you mentioned between Change Healthcare and, and Adobe, where they identified these, these primary pain points. And so the first one is the lack of transparent and clear information. What? Yeah. 
patients and customers, they want to shop and choose for their care the same, you know, the same tools they use everywhere else, like I mentioned a few minutes ago. So with access to reviews, pricing, location, all that kind of fun stuff, we as healthcare systems obviously are falling relatively short of this. It was mentioned as a major pain point by 22% of those uh, you know, shopping for healthcare. I think there are certain health systems that do really good about maybe highlighting reviews of their doctors on their websites. That's one of the the, the, the pieces that contributes to this pain mm-hmm. point. There are others that do a pretty good job about making sure that location is transparent or easy to access. The pricing one is always notoriously difficult, as we've talked about before. But I don't think I've ever experienced a health system that does all of them well. At the same time. Right. I would say location is probably the most common that people do well, at least location-based information. And then you do have some reviews, like you said, the pricing thing is still tough. But I mean, we'll probably do an episode solely on pricing transparency with all the changes that are coming there and requirements. So I won't spend a lot of time on that, but it is very hard to find someone that is, is doing it all well. So the second pain point that was uncovered in this survey was about the lack of integration and convenience. And this is a topic that we've treaded on before. In other industries, consumers' shopping preferences and data follow them. And I was just thinking about this the other day. I was ordering, not through Amazon, but like ordering through a different website. But even there, they are familiar with what my preferences were from what I purchased before. They actually knew my size. I was buying clothes. They knew my size. And so they only showed clothing that matches the size that I purchased before. You know, I guess they assume that I haven't gained a lot of weight, which is not a good assumption when you're in quarantine and over the last couple of months. But still, in healthcare, though, on the other hand, the emphasis is a little bit different. We know about the challenges about data privacy and data security, but moreover, it's patients or the health systems themselves are expected to be the gatekeepers of their data and their preferences. And we don't want to disparately go into that because we've heard about this creepiness factor that occurs. Imagine going to a hospital website and it says, hey, welcome back, Reed. It's been 47 days since your last appointment. Is it time for another appointment? You know, that sort of thing. I don't think we want that. We don't. Also, side note, 47 days since your last appointment. That is a bare naked ladies song. Right? No. <laughs> I, I remember that song. That was with the rap and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Good- yeah. But yeah, the convenience thing, I mean, certainly, and we've seen that. And I'm not going to say the stat again from McKinsey because we've said it, I don't know, six weeks in a row now, maybe. But the convenience thing is only going to continue to heighten, certainly. The third point here uh, that they call out not feeling respected or cared for by their doctor. So 39% of patients surveyed in the study mentioned not feeling respected or cared for. Flip each of these pain points they talk about here 180 degrees and the ideal consumer health experience emerges. So providing clear and transparent information continues to build trust, removing the burden for patients, and then ultimately extending that care beyond the four walls. Really what they're outlining here is potentially what the ideal customer experience is in the future. So clear and transparent information before you actually go into a healthcare setting, making an appointment, maybe knowing your prices beforehand, being able to understand clearly who's going to be in the operating room if you're going to, you know, no surprise billing kind of things. That to me sounds just in and of itself revolutionary. It really does. 
And then let's extend that even further to, you know, removing the burden of patients as gatekeepers of their data. Does that mean health systems now have like the ability to hyper-personalize their communications throughout the entire experience with that patient or that customer throughout, you know, their interactions with that health system? And by the way, does that data get transferred from one health system to another health system if you move? Like if you're moving from one state to another, does suddenly all your preference data go along with that? That to me sounds very complex model to solve. Oh boy, here we go. Now we're talking about data exchanges and interoperability and all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, Somebody smarter than me is going to have to figure out. And then lastly, and we've been talking about this a lot over this last, you know, 10 years or five months of the pandemic, which is extending care beyond the four walls of the doctor's office through personalized engagements. Could that very well mean that at one point in time, we could have a care experience with someone that's not within our care network, yet it's covered by our care network? Could we use telehealth to maybe have a consult in the middle of the night with a physician that's across the world? Think about what potentially this ideal customer experience could look like in the future, and then think about where we're at now. It sounds like we have a long way to go, Reed. We do have a long way to go. And I think a lot of that is based off of, I mean, if we think about all this, it's relative to convenience to some degree, because that's where we've seen things go in our daily life, our non-healthcare related life. Stuff is open 24-7. So that that sure is nice, right? So if you need to you know, work around your work schedule to go to the grocery store or CVS or something, right? Convenience is, you know, cannot be understated because I think, again, we're carrying iPhones in our pockets. Like I hesitate to think anybody could go back to a flip phone or something like that because we need the ability to text and email and all these things, at least we think we do. And a lot of that is out of convenience and efficiency. Very briefly, let's touch on a third article that really focuses on one part of this omnichannel experience in terms of the relationship to customer experience. And this is an article called Latest Research Shows the Future of Customer Experiences Here. And it's a digital-first omnichannel. And this is from customerexperienceupdate.com. They focus very explicitly on the call center. Again, very important part Mm. of the way you engage with customers. Let's cover some of the main points here really quickly. Well, they talk about that that more and more consumers, obviously, and we've talked about this, prefer digital service channels. They want channel choice, as they call it, and expect to be able to move seamlessly across all channels when necessary. I mean, I think this is a good indication of, like, I, I don't want to talk to anybody. Uh, no offense. I don't want to talk to anybody at HelloFresh. Like, I just want to chat with somebody on the thing real fast and have them fix something or AT&T or whoever. I don't want to sit through the phone tree and do the whole thing and you know, all that kind of stuff, right? I feel the same way. The second piece here they say is that, and this is a little generational in terms of the breakdown, but they say that private social messaging has emerged as one of the most significant channels for creating meaningful interactions with customers or with patients in this particular case. Now, I don't know a lot of call centers that are spending their time on Facebook Messenger or on WhatsApp or, or you know, other private social media messaging platforms, but that certainly is where the customers are right now. No, absolutely. I mean, we, and I think we mentioned on the show, but like, you know, of the, all the accounts that we manage for clients and things like that over this last six months, we really have seen the reviews go down, but the amount of private messages and comments and things like that go up. 
which is kind of interesting. They talk about this, and it's what I mentioned a minute ago. Online chat continues to rank first in customer satisfaction on average across all age groups. So overall, these agents, uh, agent-assisted methods like chat and phone receive higher rankings than the self-service channels. And so I think we got to think about that as you think about chat bots and things you put on the website and how you interact with clients, that the idea of just going to the knowledge center and figuring it out yourself versus actually being able to talk to somebody is a real consideration, certainly. The last major point they say here in this article is that a digital first contact center, again, a call center they're referring to, means that all agents are now digitally fluent. They stress that this provides economies of scale across your agents and will have a greater impact to whether your call center is a cost center or a profit center for your health system or for whatever organization you're supporting. Think about that, too. When you're talking to people at the call center, and I've, I've done my fair share of interacting with them, you want to make sure that their digital fluency level is all at, that, at the same level, and they're able to seamlessly, just like the consumer, be omnichannel in the way they interact with people. Interesting, huh? Yeah, it really is. Digitally fluent. Do I add that to LinkedIn? Or how, where does that go? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one to add to LinkedIn. I think I might just go add that to my skills as well. Yes. <laughs> Could someone endorse me for being digitally fluent? That would be great. <laughs> well, with that, I think you all are in for a treat because now is the time in the podcast where we're going to, after this break, we're going to go to an interview that I did with Amber Mack. If you don't know who Amber Mack is, she is a visionary and an, a person that talks about changes and trends that are happening in digital. And she's been doing it for a number of years. I started following her way back in the old tech TV days. And she got a chance to speak at the latest Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. She was a keynote speaker. After that presentation, we sat down together and had an interview and which she shared some of the four emerging trends that are empowering consumers today, ones that we in the health systems should be aware of. So give it a listen. I think you'll really enjoy it. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today I am beyond delighted to be featuring someone that I just recently had the opportunity to have a live Q&A session with at the Virtual Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy Summit. But it's someone that I've been following for many years now, not to make you feel old, Amber, because <laughs> you've been at sort of the forefront of technology and consumerism for many years. And that's Amber Mack. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. As I said, I've been following you for quite a while now, but you know, some people listening in may not know about you. Would you mind just sharing a brief background and bio on yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I started my career uh, out in San Francisco during the dot-com boom and uh, worked in the technology space. And because I have a, a background in journalism and a master's in journalism, I always wanted to go into media. And so soon after spending almost five years in the tech sector, I started working on G4 Tech TV with Leo Laporte and did a daily call-in show, an hour-long show called Call for Help. Since that time, I started a number of different podcasts and also my own business, and I've been speaking professionally around the world for about 13 years, talking about uh, technology trends, disruption, innovation from a really practical perspective. Oh, boy, the tech TV times. I remember those times. <laughs> and Call for Help is when I first actually heard your voice. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So anyway, let's pivot a little bit to you presented at the, the virtual summit about these four technology trends that are really influencing the way consumers are behaving. And, and these are trends that we need 
to be uh, as an industry following up on. And I thought it was a fascinating, fascinating conversation. So I'm excited to talk to you about those. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I spoke about uh, how to connect with the engaged consumer. And I think that word engaged is particularly important because we know now more than ever that uh, consumers out there, they have switched their habits and, and it's happening more quickly than we could ever imagine. And we're seeing something in the tech industry called hyper adoption, where it no longer takes 10, 20 years for consumers to adopt new ways of doing things. It can happen uh, in six months. And I think these are some of the trends that we need to pay attention to. Wow, six month adoption rate. That's pretty quick. And we in healthcare have seen that, particularly if you think about like telehealth, over the pandemic, we've seen a rapid adoption of those tools and technologies by consumers. But the ones that you outlined that we're going to get into, these are much broader and and at times more profound to our industry. But I'm, I'm struck by this whole six-month adoption rate. In my mind, I even think about it as like Moore's Law for technology adoption. We're starting to get this rapid introduction to new tools, and we're embracing them in our lives. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, I was just writing recently about a Gartner report where they talked about five emerging tech terms that you should know. And if you dive down into the report, one of the interesting things that they talked about was how uh, China and India have started using health passport mobile apps to help people to be able to identify the infection risk of of one of these uh, health passport holders. So the idea is it's red if it's a confirmed case of COVID-19, yellow means the person should be in quarantine, and green means free to travel. And and the interesting thing about this to your six months point is that what they have said that this is really the first time that Gartner has seen a technology that is less than six months old that has already had a 20% market penetration. Obviously, these are unique times, but I do think that really speaks to the future that we're going into. And the accessibility that many of us have to technology now is also probably facilitating this quick adoption. I mean, our mobile phones, even, you know, connected technology, uh, there's a lot of things that are, are probably driving this rapid embracement of new ways to connect with organizations and with one another frankly. Yeah, I mean, I think what's been really interesting, I think we've seen over the past five months that there are many essential services out there. And I know that uh, all of your listeners will understand that, uh, particularly in healthcare. But I think if we layer on top of that, we could almost say that when it comes to essential services, that technology and the internet is pretty high up there in terms of its importance, not just for people to be able to work from home, but to do appointments with their doctor from home, to stay in touch with friends and family as we've been isolated on and off over these months. To think about technology as like sort of an essential service. And I think that in many cases we talk about in healthcare, part of health equity implies access to broadband and technology. We believe that that's in the future state of how we're going to be delivering care. This is another thing. I think when we talk about internet uh, access as a utility, I mean, that's something in the tech industry we've been talking about for so many years, but never has there been a time where it has been uh, so forced in terms of understanding the needs of that infrastructure to have that in place as it is now during COVID-19. I think we're going to see more and more communities recognize that uh, it's not just about providing that infrastructure, but also having infrastructure that allows for all of this technology that we're going to talk about. So yes, it's great if you can do a, a virtual video call with your doctor, but if you live in a rural community and you have really slow internet, that's not going to go well. Well, let's pivot to these four technology trends that we're seeing and let's frame those up and and talk a little bit about them. So the four trends that I have been focusing on um, are in communication, 
transportation, healthcare, and productivity as well in terms of uh, automation opportunities. So if we dive into the first one, I think this is relevant for everyone in terms of understanding the habits of, of how people are communicating and the shift to a more of a voice revolution. So the idea being that people are getting information from smart speakers. We've seen a, a surge in the number of Americans who have bought smart speakers over the past few months. We're seeing a, a assistance within people's phones, whether it's Siri or Google Assistant. We're using our voice more and more. And imagine how that uh, accelerates because we live in a society where we have been told not to touch as many surfaces. You can only mm-hmm. imagine how voice is going to change the future of communication. I was just counting up my voice-enabled devices in my home, and I'm scared to say that I have actually <laughs> more than 10. Maybe I'm an earlier adopter to many of these technologies, but I would say that this uh, embracement of voice-enabled interaction with technology is, is significant. And I remember even years ago, it was, I don't know even how many years ago, when we started to play around with Siri, we thought it was new. Now it's just become ubiquitous to our lives. Yeah, it really has. And I think there's two interesting things about voice technology, particularly with smart speakers or assistants built into your phone. One is that unlike most uh, technology, especially when we talk about hardware, like you know physical devices, we're relying on the software within these devices. And the software is always getting better over time due to advancements in artificial intelligence. So it just gets uh, more efficient as time goes on. The second point is if you look at places such as the city of Las Vegas, what's really interesting there is that they have actually adopted from a municipal level, the ability for people within that city to actually ask questions to Amazon Alexa about things like building permits or the status of local parks in terms of them being open or not. And they do this not just because it's cool technology, but because smart speakers are quite cheap. You can get a uh, smart speaker for under $50 and, and that increases the accessibility. And actually developing skills for smart speakers is not as challenging as it, as it once was. And I have actually helped some organizations develop some skills for their their health systems to access care or to get information around ED wait times and and urgent care locations close to them. I think that it's becoming now integrated into these smart speakers are both mobile if they're in your pocket, but also stationary if they're on your desktop as ways that you can start to interact with not only the physical world outside of you, but with others. Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. I mean, if you look at some of the smart speakers uh, in the home, you have uh, Google Home is one example that has adopted even a screen within their smart speakers. So there's a camera built in. And many people, of course, you should be always concerned about privacy and security. But let me give you a scenario. In South Korea, in terms of their fight against uh, COVID-19, they're actually testing right now senior citizens who are aging in place at home. And what they've done using smart speakers is uh, they are basically counting and calculating how much that senior's interacting with the smart speaker to play music or call family members. And when they notice that there's a lull in communication, there's uh, an automatic response to encourage a person to go check on that senior at home because they're worried that potentially they could be lonely or they could be hurt or they could have some other type of issue that encourages them to need help. And so I think that those type of studies are things that we could see as well in this part of the world. And you also mentioned in your keynote about the way physicians are starting to use these technologies as well in their day-to-day practice. I think what's really interesting, I think from a a physician standpoint, more and more is one, the capability within smart speakers for people to get information, uh, not to diagnose themselves, but again, just to enhance that information that they have at their fingertips. And when you think we talk about communication, I think it's beyond even 
even just uh, smart speakers or assistants. When we talk about virtual healthcare, there's so much happening in that space right now in terms of enabling people who don't have access to a doctor to have that face-to-face experience. So I think more and more, uh, some of these things that have been accelerated during COVID-19, to me, actually really just just makes sense in the long run, and it could be advantageous to everyone. And it's changing the way, too, that we're interacting, because the way we speak to devices is a lot different than when we type into devices. It's more conversational, right? So if you have a a website right now, and you're interested in getting people, giving them a a, a better ability to find you, especially if they're doing voice searches, then uh, we know that when it comes to search engine optimization, you have to focus more on phrases. Because when people type into Google, they type things like doctor nearby. But when they ask a smart speaker, they will say, tell me the doctors who are in my neighborhood. It's a very much more of a a phrase-based search. So even that, I think, changes uh, how people are able to find you. And then lastly, I think one of the big changes, too, is that this aligns with a lot of accessibility standards. There are certain people that are visually impaired, and now we have the ability to interact with healthcare through technology without having to see things. Yeah, from an accessibility standpoint, I mean, when it comes to all types of technology, I think we've seen the advancements there. I mean, even think about, uh, although this isn't uh, necessarily just voice related, but if you think about things such as real-time transcription, when you're doing things such as as Zoom calls or or doing virtual uh, video sessions, we've seen even in the past few weeks, a real improvement in the tools that are available for that real-time transcription. Uh, As one example, if you're doing a a Google Meet meeting, uh, you can turn on that real-time transcription. So if someone's hard of hearing, they are able to follow along by reading the real-time text on the screen. And, and because, again, that's fueled by advanced artificial intelligence, it's actually quite accurate and amazing to see that we've gotten to that point. Okay, well, we could talk about this for a very long time, but there are three other trends that we want to address. (laughs) So let's talk about the second one that you brought up, which was uh, also very fascinating, transportation. Yeah, so within transportation, I would include uh, mobility and machines. And I I think that's important to think about mobility, meaning how we get around uh, with autonomous vehicles or self-driving cars. Machines being that uh, these aren't just machines you see in in factories, but particularly if we look at healthcare, uh, the country of Japan has said that during 20 2020, they expect that four out of five of their care recipients will be taken care of in part by a robot. These are not the mm. Terminator style robots that are frightening, but uh, you know, friendly looking robots that that help with tasks such as lifting someone in care in and out of a bed, also keeping them company, taking their temperature within hospitals. We've really seen an amazing advancement in terms of robotics. You also brought up an example of that in, I, I think it was in Japan, where they have robots in lobbies or where people are coming in that can actually take temperatures and detect if people wear masks too. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's a company called Cruiser Health, and they definitely have these robots uh, all around the world. It started in Belgium. And the idea within hospitals is that there's a robot greeter as soon as you walk into the hospital. And that greeter will help to one, like you said, take your temperature, but it also uses something called computer vision, which is essentially imagine it like this, like the robot has eyes and it's able to see if if your mask is on correctly, and it will notify you if you need to fix your mask or put a mask on. There's a few interesting things happening here. One is from a a safety perspective, you know, it's a lot better to have a machine doing that job when people are coming in to make sure that they're protected before they actually see a human. But two, as well, I think what's really interesting about this is just that the speed at which this robot operates, if you watch some of the videos, it's amazing. It's so advanced that even just as people walk by, it can be taking their temperature and on a real time basis. And they're even using robots like this in schools in China. 
and we hear here in America, they've been talking about trying to put nurses in every school. This could be a very rapid approach to this if we would adopt that in order to keep schools safe, not only through the pandemic, but even post-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I was just curious. So I, I actually uh, filled out the online form for Cruiser Health to find out how much one of these robots cost. And yeah. uh, the starting price, I think, is 37500 But if you think about, and I'm not trying to get rid of jobs here, but if you think about how effective that robot could be in schools, especially with elementary age kids and, and how much they probably would love that robot and name it and you know think it was kind of a fun thing in their school, you can see a, a real practical uh, scenario where this robot would make sense in terms of temperature and maybe less intimidating than a human. I do think we have to look to other parts of the world in terms of understanding what's happening with um, mobility and machines, because while in, in this part of the world, there are times where we've kind of halted some of the testing and we've slowed things down during COVID. In other parts of the world, they're actually doing the exact opposite. They're accelerating. Robots in health systems is not new. I remember actually touring through some of the larger health systems here in the country. And in the basements, they had robotic transport where they were moving, you know, medical devices and even like linen cleaning supplies, et cetera, throughout the basements of these health systems. But now we're seeing this sort of transportation with these self-autonomous cars coming up out of the basement, so to speak, and being applied in everyday life. That's the interesting thing, I think, with autonomous vehicles. And 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 don't get me wrong, I'm not convinced that we're going to see self-driving cars on highways everywhere anytime soon, but they make sense in certain communities, maybe uh, on the property of a hospital where you're able to really regulate and manage the roadways. It would make sense to have an autonomous vehicle in communities in Florida, like the villages, where, again, you can control that particular autonomous vehicle within that community to shuttle people around who maybe don't want to drive anymore or can't drive anymore. It makes sense within those environments. So there are places where we're already seeing that testing uh, that has become quite advanced. Would you consider drones as part of this uh, category as well? I I would actually. I mean, I think, you know, within transportation, that's why I I sort of have that subhead of mobility and machines. And I think that drones fit within that category as well. And obviously, there's lots uh, of uh, interesting developments happening with drones as well. Yeah, I think this certainly is a trend that we need to look at. And particularly since a lot of complex healthcare systems are pretty large, and moving people around is very significant, and parking is always constantly a problem. This could be a way that we can actually start to make the experience for patients much more accessible. But then I also see a potential application of actually uh, delivering care out to the community as well. And, you know, we hear about health systems kind of partnering with Uber and Lyft and things to help with bringing people to care and delivering pharmaceuticals to, you know, various homes. This could be potentially a a trend that we want to look at for the future. Yeah. And you know what, I I think oftentimes what's what happens is when we talk about robots and machines, and and all of this technology, people feel overwhelmed and they feel as though, you know what, we can never do this. It's not going to make sense. But what I I try to encourage people during these talks that I do is to just find the courage to pilot and and just try one interesting thing that you're going to do that year or within that six-month span that is new and unique and different. And I think through piloting with some of this technology, what you end up finding is, hey, you know, this worked or this didn't work. But you also have this excitement and momentum that builds among a team that maybe, you know, wants 
wants to try something new. And there can be a lot of learning along the way. So two other trends to jump into. The next one is one that I actually am very excited about. So let's talk about that one. Yeah. So uh, from a healthcare perspective, I am not a healthcare specialist, but what I can talk about is trends among consumers. And I think what's interesting there is just uh, as we see more and more consumers who have the power of data at their fingertips, whether they're using a a wearable device and uh, managing their health and fitness through some type of app. I talked during my presentation about using a band called the Whoop Band, which has gotten a lot of attention over the past uh, few months. A lot of data within that, whether it's your respiratory rate or your resting heart rate or your heart rate variability. And what I love about this, some people say that uh, data is the new selfie. And I think we're going to see more and more of this, that uh, people are empowered by having data at their fingertips, and they will bring that data to their doctor. And that changes the conversation for people on your side. I read a recent study that says this adoption of these kind of uh, IoT devices, wearable devices, and even wellness apps, they're really seeing a huge rise in two different types of people. One of those people that are very healthy, they focus on their exercise, they, you know, any kind of wellness type of activities that they're doing. And the other are people that have chronic conditions where they measure. I myself having type 1 diabetes, I measure myself as well. And so this is where I see an interesting application in healthcare. As this technology gets easier for the consumer to use and manage, I think we're going to see this adoption again. We can use that term again called hyper-adoption, where the adoption rate becomes quite high. I do not work with the people at Whoop, but I will give them a lot of credit because with their band, the idea behind it is that you never take it off. And, And you don't have to take it off because the battery lasts for a week or 10 days. And then there's a really lightweight battery that you can put on for about an hour once a week. You put it on top of the band while you're wearing it and it fully charges it. I mention this because I think about my dad who is uh, turning 75 soon and he has high blood pressure and I'm worried about his health. I love this idea that, you know, he could get this band, put it on, download the app and then not really think about it except for, you know, once a week in terms of charging it up. So again, as the ease of use continues to get better, we're going to see that that massive adoption. Well, and you mentioned one other thing too in this, in, when you were talking about the, the healthcare wearables and wellness is that Kaiser Permanente is doing an interesting thing in that they're recommending certain wellness apps for their patients. Yeah, absolutely. And and I feel like we're going to see this more and more in terms of uh, the recommendation of some of these apps. And and in in that particular example with uh, Kaiser Permanente, what they've been doing is that they've actually been recommending a uh, Calm app. And the Calm app is a a meditation and sleep app. They've added it to their what they call their digital self-care portfolio. So the idea is members can download that app at no cost whatsoever. And they've just recognized that obviously we live in a highly anxious society And people are not sleeping enough. And they've made Calm available for their people in terms of their employees and their team. And I think that is just an amazing step in the right direction. That in and of itself shows the importance of health systems to start to become the curators, too, of many of these devices. And I think that this is also a mantra that's happening with public health officials across the country as well, which kind of leads to what you, you started off talking about, about these health passports. If actual organizations, like governments, etc., are starting to create their, these own wellness apps for tracking, contact tracing, whatever it might be, this could really bring in a whole new model of how these apps and, and technology can be applied. 
I think that we're seeing that right now, especially in contact tracing with some of the apps that exist all around the world. And and I think the only barrier that we have here, and we talked about this at the event, is just uh, a little bit of privacy hysteria. <laughs> and uh, I think people are really concerned and really unsure of how these apps actually work. And so they're fearful, which I totally understand. Uh, but that is the job of the, the healthcare marketer or communicators to be able to properly explain how they work, what data is collected. And so often that's where people fall short. So uh, I think if we can close that gap, we could have much more success in terms of the adoption of some of this technology. One thing that we're finding is that there's been a shift now around data privacy, so to speak. We're seeing people start to open up their eyes a little bit more. And the more they understand about this, and you you mentioned, right, data is your new selfie, the more that we see the application of this data being applied in managing your care, I think people become a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think the education piece is, is essential. And that's why if you look at some of the most popular roles in the future, especially in the technology sector, even the role of the communicator or the explainer becomes an essential role. And, and that may be the person within communications or marketing. But the idea is how can you be that bridge between the technology and the public? And how can you actually explain how something works? How can you make people feel safe and comfortable and just less fearful about technology? Because there, there is a lot of of misinformation out there in terms of how some of these apps work. And some of it is founded, but some of it is unfounded. Speaking of fear, that this leads a little bit to our fourth trend that you talked about, which is automation and, and artificial intelligence. Yeah, so I, I think um, this is probably the one that people are most fearful about. We know that 50% of jobs are going to be at risk of changing in the coming years. And, you know, when we talk about automation and the future of work, uh, we realize that uh, it's a changing world, whether we like it or not jobs are, are already being impacted. And what's really interesting, and I recommend people uh, just Google this chart from Bloomberg, it's called the Bloomberg Automation Chart. And what it does is tell you the likelihood that any job, and you can put in a, a number of diff- different job titles, the likelihood that that position will be automated in the future. But what I find fascinating about this chart, Chris, is that if you look at that chart and you look in the lower right-hand quadrant, in that quadrant, it talks about the jobs that will be affected by automation. Those are the same jobs that are being affected and in some cases eliminated right now during COVID-19. So that in many ways is kind of a big concern and something that people should pay attention to. I think that this has the most profound impact on the way we currently are looking at our society because uh, AI and automation, it has a significant role to play and it's designed as most technology is to make us more efficient and actually remove some of those menial tasks that we do. Yeah, and that's where I see the opportunity, right? So I I probably am a a pretty big optimist when it comes to new technology if you understand how to seize that technology. And so within this section in my presentation where I talk about the future of automation, I do encourage people to embrace automation opportunities. And what I mean by that is that there are opportunities all around us, especially in marketing as one example. If you look at, uh, you know, how do you create an inexpensive video for social media? There are tools out there like Lumen5 that is powerful powered by AI that will turn a blog post into a video automatically. Those are those automation ops. Um, That's a very specific example. But I I mentioned that because they do exist. And we know that the organizations that are able to successfully apply AI and and automate some of those processes will see an increase in profitability by about 38% by uh, 2035, according to Accenture. So the organizations that can seize those opportunities are the ones that are going to be able to survive. So I think we need to see this as a chance to leverage technology in the right way. 
we recently did a podcast about the AI hype cycle in healthcare, where we talked about, you know, the role of AI. And we see that while it is going up, you know, it is in the hype cycle, so to speak, the applications of AI can be very significant across a health system, call centers, chatbots, looking at clinical research, medical research, looking at big data. I think there's a lot of elements that could play into this. And it certainly is something we need to be aware of. Again, I mean, I think that's why you, all of us really need to embrace this idea of constant learning. And I, I shared this quote from uh, futurist Alvin Toffler in my presentation, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. And I like to share this because, you know, even though we're talking about this today and all this technology, if we did this again in a month, we would probably have new things to talk about. <laughs> that's how quickly yeah. it's changing. Yeah. But we have to know how to, to learn, unlearn learn what we learned, and then relearn again based on new information. And and that's really what it's going to take to succeed in these disruptive times. Wow, those words are so well spoken. I appreciate uh, that perspective. And so it very much is true. Um, Amber, speaking of learning, people that are listening in, they should follow you, they should learn more (laughs) about what you talk about, because you share a lot of these trends that are happening. And you're very prolific. So can you share with people ways that maybe they can connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Probably the best way I do a free newsletter every single Tuesday. It's at ambermack.com slash newsletter. We have uh, almost 10,000 subscribers, uh, no strings attached. I'm not selling you anything. It really is just a, a process of being able to recognize week to week uh, what new technological changes are happening in our world, how to adapt to them. Um, there are practical tips. Uh, there's tips on long-term planning. And uh, really, I think it's just a, a good practice to keep up in terms of the, the changes. It's as much for me in terms terms of the writing of the newsletter as it is for everybody else out there. I look forward to that newsletter every time I get it in my inbox. And you also do a podcast. And I mean, we're we're a podcast here, so we have to share that podcast, right? The feed? Yeah, so I do the feed. It's a, a podcast. It's also on uh, SiriusXM on channel 167 in the US and Canada. And it airs every weekend, or you can get it, like you mentioned, on all the podcast platforms. You just look up the feed. Uh, same type of content if you prefer to listen to uh, the trends that are taking place. We have some of the leading change makers in terms of technology on our show. Amber, this has been such a great conversation. And I know that each one of those trends can probably uh, warrant a, a whole 30 minute conversation you know, <laughs> where we can go deep into that. You know, Maybe in the future, we can have you back on to talk about other emerging trends that are happening. And I encourage people that are listening in, we're going to put links in the show notes to where they can reach out to you. I encourage everybody listening to connect with you online and you know pay attention to some of the things that you're saying, because you've been a very good predictor of where technology is moving and how it's interacting with our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much for having me on uh, the show. And I do want to say that uh, it's not just about people learning from me. If anyone has any interesting applications of a technology in healthcare, hit me up on uh, Twitter at Amber Mack, and I would love to hear about them. Awesome. Well, that is great. Amber, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Special thanks uh, again, the second time for the first time, second second thank you for the same appearance. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Anyway, <laughs> you know, we were super thrilled to have Amber on the show uh, originally, and so it's great to uh, bring this back around again. Really think this is an interesting topic, and certainly as we get on the backside of this pandemic, hopefully it becomes more and more kind of top of mind for folks. And so it was great to hear her voice again, rerun mm-hmm. that uh, interview. So maybe we'll have her 
back on talking about something else in the future, but um, but this was a good one, certainly. Quick plug for, again, the TPS report. You can uh, sign up for that over at touchpoint.health. And of course, that's the five articles to start your week. Also down at the bottom of that email, there are a couple of quick links to upcoming industry education conferences, things like that. So keep on top of that and be sure to get registered. The fall will be here before we know it. And uh, we'll do a couple of recommendations before we get out of here. What do you what do you got today? Reed, I'm going to recommend something that is an app, but it's also tied to my in-home devices. As many of you may know, I have Alexa devices all across my home. So that not only those, uh, the echoes that, you know, various things that you in various rooms, but also devices like light switches and light bulbs, etc. One thing that I've noticed is their app that's associated with it. They have an app that I have on my phone. It's very well connected to my home. And they've been doing some great advancements around how you just manage not only all your devices and how you can interact with your smart home. They're also advancing a lot around the AI built into the app. So now what you could do is you can actually use the Alexa app or the Alexa devices using their AI to call the nearest pizza place order an Uber, set routines around how you want to start your day. Like you can have your lights turn on, your radio turn on, etc. And always, as we've talked about, it's kind of germane to today's conversation. They're learning more and more about you and your voices. And so now they have the ability to differentiate depending on who asks by your voice, it'll know who you are and have a different reaction. So it's pretty interesting. I use it a lot now in my day-to-day life. Uh, obviously, I talk to my devices. I guess that seems weird if I would have said that five years ago, but that's what I do now. And now it's an integrated piece. The app now re- has reminders to me through my phone about any kind of reminders that I may have set up as I'm walking through the day. It's really, really handy, really convenient. So if you're a smart home user, I definitely would recommend that. Very cool. Very, very cool. You know, with it being a, I don't know if this is really a holiday week per se, but it is the summer. I have talked about this in the past. I probably have even made this recommendation before, maybe even more than once. I can't remember, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to recommend a digital sabbatical. This is something I've done for some years to varying degrees of success and length and you know those types of things. Ideally, and probably the best times I've done it were when we went on a family vacation and I didn't take any devices. And so was completely disconnected phone, iPad, computer, nothing, watch, you know, nothing for an entire week. Now, I will say that's hard to do sometimes. Uh, and I realized that. And quite honestly, it actually would take me two to three days to feel normal, uh, which is a terrible thing probably, but you know, just this weird feeling, anxiousness, anxiety, you know, that kind of stuff. But even just like you get up and leave a restaurant and you're like, Oh wait, I must've left my phone. I'm like, Oh wait, no, I don't, I don't have my phone. It's an interesting detox almost that your body goes through actually moving away from technology and digital. But in any case, I would encourage everybody to try it and do it. I, you know, even if it's just for 24 hours <clears throat> or a couple of days or a weekend or something like that, maybe an interesting way to start. So once you get done with work on Friday, maybe don't pick up your phone or something again till Sunday morning or something, you know, but, but try it. I, I think it's, it's an interesting practice. And I think something that, you know, certainly as I do more and more work with my hands and woodworking and leather and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, there's little spurts, a few hours here and there that, you know, I may go, but a digital sabbatical, I, th- I think it's a, a great way to 
you know, spend some time. I think it's very interesting that you and I actually almost recommended exact opposite things. I think that the healthy balance is always between you and I, Reed, right? We're the yeah. yin and the yang, I guess. That's right. Well, and <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love gadgets, certainly. And, um, I, you know, I get new technology all the time because of, uh, you know, what, what you and I do for a living. I mean, so I think it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to be able to understand how that fits in your life and all that kind of stuff. So... All right. Well, another great episode. And again, thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Uh, number one way you can help us out certainly is rate, review, subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Certainly Twitter, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to track Chris and I down. It's just our names. And touchpoint.health is the website. So you can find us through there as well. If we're missing a topic, missing an expert, something you want us to cover or a person you want us to have on the show, we'd love to hear that certainly. And just excited to continue doing this show well into year four and appreciate the support. So I hope everybody is having a great summer and maybe a great holiday week, depending on what you have going on. But for uh, Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.